This message was recorded on the campus of Weimar University. For more information, visit our website, weimar.edu. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for this reminder of creation and our recreation back to the image of God. And we pray this evening that your words would be spoken. My feet are made of clay, and we pray that you would hide me behind the cross. We pray that Christ would be uplifted and that Jesus would be seen. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our passage of reflection this evening is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 9. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 9. And these are the words of Nathan the prophet to David. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. There was an apologist, an evangelical apologist, very famous, that I listened to for years. He had his own podcast, multi-million dollar ministry, books that I read. I actually went to watch him speak when I was in Anchorage of Alaska. Anchorage of Alaska. Anchorage, Alaska of all places. And he, he captured the imagination in the hearts of a generation and after he died, there was an investigation done because of some allegations that emerged. And they checked his cell phone. Come to find out, he had multiple phones. And on those phones were images and text messages. Evidently, he had been living a double life, moral licentiousness, moral impropriety, you do the math. It was an exposure of epic proportions after this man died, and his children had to go on record. Some of them were split, and I remember watching his daughter go on their ministry website apologizing for the sins of her deceased father. And here... David is exposed. Now, before we get into the heart and the thesis of tonight's message, there's a couple of things I need to get out of the way, because they always come up when you talk about David and Bathsheba. Number one, a man after God's own heart. This always comes up, and let me just knock it out very quickly. I encourage you to read the conflict series, wonderful books. Just a short paragraph, Patriarchs and Prophets, 723. It was when he was walking in the counsel of God that he was called a man after God's own heart. Amen. When he sinned, this ceased to be true of him until by repentance he had returned to the Lord. All right, so let's just put that to rest. The other one, I've heard at times, is this was Bathsheba's fault. <laughs> because what was she doing taking a bath in a place that David could see? And I've read multiple commentaries, and there seems to be a general consensus that, that the palace is considerably larger than the surrounding houses, 
and considerably higher. And this is what scholars conjecture. And as he was walking around, he was able to peer into the courtyard, into the private residences of the people that lived around him. And so this was, according to some commentators, this was a violation of privacy. Now, in our community of faith, the Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in what's called the historical grammatical approach. Not the historical critical approach, praise God. The historical grammatical approach, which means that we believe that this book is inspired by God. So the words are important. Amen? The words matter. The grammar and the history matter. Now, when you're reading the Bible, and the Bible writer uses a particular word, pay attention. But if he repeats it twice, you really perk up. But if he repeats it three times, it means there's an emphasis there. Now, let me read to you a few verses here. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4. Then David sent messengers and took her. Took her. In the parable that Nathan the prophet brings to David of the rich man that steals this lamb, notice what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 4. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David took. David took. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 19, in the NASB, New American Standard Bible, it's a good version, it's a literal version, and I looked it up, it's in the Hebrew. Actually, it's in the New King James as, as well. It's the wrong verse. All right. It says, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 9, you have killed, I'm sorry, 12, verse 9, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword. David took, David took, David took. The actual infraction that, the, that Nathan the prophet brings to the intention of David is killing Uriah the Hittite and taking something that does not belong to him. And that's why David, when he casts judgment on the man in the parable, not knowing that it's actually him, says that this man deserves to die and has to restore fourfold. Why fourfold? Because according to the law of Moses, if you take something, you have to make restitution. Now it's interesting, in Patriarchs and Prophets 727, Ellen White says, he shall restore fourfold, had been David's unwitting sentence upon himself, on listening to the prophet Nathan's parable, and according to his own sentence, he was to be judged. Four of his sons must fall, and the loss of each would be a result of his father's sin. Four sons. The son, the first son of David and Bathsheba, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, fourfold. Now, when you take something from somebody, you do it one of two ways. One, you do it when the person is unaware. That's how you steal. You do it when the person doesn't know. And Uriah was off to war, he took. Another way that you steal is you do it from a position of power, by force. You ever been robbed before at gunpoint? That's a position of power. Now, in relationship to Bathsheba, David is in a position of power. And when the king says, come, you come. David took, David took, David took. The other thing is, in the parable that God gave Nathan to David, David was represented by the wicked Bathsheba was represented as a lamb. Not a snake, 
not a wolf, not even a goat, a lamb that was slaughtered. That's the parable. And that, my friends, is the historical, grammatical approach. That's what the text says. I was called into the conference office a number of years ago when I was in pastoral ministry. Several of my other colleagues were there as a small, tight-knit group. group. And I sat there as the conference president told us that there's a man that we had looked up to for years and had mentored us had had a moral fall. I was devastated. He was doing spiritual counseling with a young lady in his hotel room. Invited her to his hotel, and she spent the night. Little did I know that a few months later, I'd be at a camp meeting, and a colleague of mine met this young girl. She was just a kid. Youthful. I mean, she was above age. She was 18, 19 years of age. This man was in his 50s. And he used his authority as a spiritual counselor. And people are like, why didn't this girl run away? She was in a helpless position. If you're a counselor and you do this, you could go to jail. It's an abuse of power. And the thing is, The next day, she told us that she's dealing with all these emotions and this guilt, and they're sitting at a meeting with other people discussing spiritual things about, about ministry and so forth, and he's going on as business as usual. And here, in the narrative, in 2 Samuel, Chapter 11, verse 27, And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the NASB says, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at the time frame. David is going on as business as usual. The time frame is a minimum of nine months. Some scholars believe that this was over the course of a year. In other words, he's going through matters in the royal palace. This baby's born. Uriah is dead. And there's only three people on planet Earth. He thinks that know exactly what happened. Him Bathsheba and his boy Joab, his nephew. And the question is, how did David get here? How did David get to the place where his conscience is asleep? Where he's living, you know, he's not in a good spiritual place. His frontal lobe is not functioning. Reason and conscience, he's in a stupor spiritually. This year, he's in a fog. He's in a place that he doesn't even know where he is in respect to God. How did he get here? 
Well, it didn't happen overnight. Patriarchs and prophets, in the chapter on David and Bathsheba, listen to this. The work of the enemy is not abrupt. It is not at the outset sudden and startling. It is the secret undermining of the strongholds of principle. It begins in apparently small things. Are you listening to this? It's not as though David got up one day and, oh, this happened. No, there was an erosion of the moral fabric of what was going on in here. She said the process was gradual, and it began with the little things. The neglect to be true to God and rely wholly upon Him. The disposition to follow the customs and the practices of the world. Let me point out a couple areas where the compromise began. In 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 13, the Bible says that when David became king, he took on wives and concubines. Now, let me tell you what a concubine is. This is from the Bible Dictionary. The concubine is a second-tier wife. Okay? And the Bible Dictionary indicates the concubine of chiefs and kings were symbols of their virility and power. What is virility? The dictionary definition of virility, the quality of having strength, energy, and a strong sex drive. In other words, one of the purposes of a concubine was to fulfill the sexual gratifications of the king. And the Bible says he took on wives and concubines, plural. Now listen to what the servant of the Lord, Ellen White, says in Spiritual Gifts, volume 4, page 86. David finally fell into the common practice of other kings around him, of having a plurality of, of wives, and his life was embittered by the evil results of polygamy. His first wrong in taking more than one wife, thus departing from God's wise arrangement, this departure from right prepared the way for greater evils. Did you hear that? In other words, this compromise in regards to passions, she says, prepared the way for greater evils. This is what we call enculturation. Enculturation is the gradual acquisition of characteristics and norms of cultures or groups around you. It's gradual. And so, David, if you look at the narrative, according to um, Patriarchs and Prophets, David had almost conquered every single people group around him that were in opposition to Israel. She actually says that David had actually fulfilled the promise of Abraham in the territory that they would occupy, from the river Euphrates all the way to the Nile. He had done it. There was just this small city of Rabbah that was to fall. And in conquering these nations, the customs and the practices of those people became normative for him. We call it today media, enculturation, desensitization. We don't call it adultery anymore. We call it an extramarital affair. It sure is extra. Extramarital affair. We don't call it sin anymore. We call it an alternate lifestyle. And so the things that were heinous to us become suddenly normative. Media 
enculturation. And so David has all this exposure. And the moral fabric of what's taking place in his own heart, there's an erosion. And it's gradual. The other thing is appetite. This is found in the book on temperance by Ellen White, page 14. David and Solomon, what has especially been favored of God, he had induced through indulgence of appetite and passions to incur God's displeasure. This is talking about the role of Satan. Notice what he said, appetite and passions. There's a clue as to what is happening in the royal palace because in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 13, the Bible says, At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. There's alcohol in the royal palace. There's a bartender. They're serving vodka in the royal palace. And the Bible says in the New American Standard Version, David was drinking with him. So the appetite and passions, these two, the erosion of the moral fabric of David, enculturation. When I was in graduate school, we all stressed out from studying Greek, thousands of pages of books. I thought I was going to lose my mind. When will this ever end? And then, after Sabbath, come on now, after sundown, it's Saturday night. And look, I'm a seminarian. I'm not going to do what the pagans do. We have our Adventist version of Saturday night. Isn't that right? Hmm? And so we would go down to the city of South Bend. Because there's certainly nothing in Berrien Springs. And so we would descend, my seminarians and myself, into that town, and we would eat and eat and eat, and then after that, we went to this place that served cheesecake. And let me tell you about this cheesecake. One piece was like this big and this big with whipped cream on top. I've never seen cheesecake like that in my life. And I was like, oh, I deserve this. You know what I'm talking about? Comfort food, you're all wound up, stressed out, and when you need comfort food, come on now, you're not dreaming about Brussels sprouts and broccoli. <laughs> it's junk. Ah. And then after that, our Adventist version of entertainment, click. It's not rated R. Little PG-13 action going on. Netflix. Oh, they didn't have that back then. I'm sorry. <laughs> you eat junk and you watch junk. The Saturday night vibe. And open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. This is... Now, it's not Saturday night. I don't believe that. But that's the vibe. Let me read it to you. It happened in the spring of the year. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. At the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel 
and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Look, if David would have been at war, there probably would have been a different story. Wrong place, wrong time. But he's stressed out. He's just come back after a major war. Let's send all Israel out to war, except I'm going to kick it in Jerusalem, in the crib. I'm going to chill. Oh, Saturday night vibe. Like, oh, I just need to relax. And so in verse 2, then it happened one evening. Now, some translators say in the afternoon, and some commentators say this is a siesta. This brother's relaxing. Oh, let me just relax. And he has some idle time. And he says, let me watch something. Pulls out his iPhone. I'm sorry, they didn't have that back then. He goes to the ancient version of social media. Let's see what some of my other countrymen are doing. Mm. Mm, I see that brother Ebenezer's got a new mango tree going on there. Ah. Except they, these people aren't putting their stuff out for the, for, the, for the king to see. This was an invasion of privacy. It goes over there to Sister Hulda. Then he sees a pop-up ad. From the algorithms of Lucifer Inc. Company. Specially designed for him. Click. You get the picture. Now look. Because of enculturation, because of indulgence in appetite and passions, this brother's frontal lobe is not working. Let me show it to you. Click. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was beautiful to behold. And so he sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said to him, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? If the frontal lobe is working, oh, this is another man's wife. Bad idea. You know what I mean? Because he's probably thinking, according to one commentator, to take this woman to be his concubine, husband of another, you know, wife of another husband. Not a good idea. But there should have been something else in there. It says, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, look, it says he's a Hittite. This is a convert. He's not a Jew. He's a convert that has come to a knowledge of the true God and is serving him. But it says Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah the Hittite is a bad man. Now, I'm not talking about morally, but he's in a chapter of the Bible called the Mighty Men of David. Have you ever read that chapter? 37 of some bad men. I'm talking about from a standpoint of military acumen. One of them killed 800 people, 800 other soldiers by himself. By himself. Another person killed so many people, his, his sword got stuck to his hand. Another of the 37 went down into a pit and killed a lion with his bare hands. Another of the 37 went and killed a giant of an Egyptian with no weapons. He took the spear from this giant and killed him with his own spear. These were David's mighty men. And the last one that is listed is Uriah the Hittite. This is SEAL Team, SEAL Team 6. These are David's special forces. These are assassins. 
And the penalty, according to the law of Moses, for doing something like this, it's death. It's death. Uriah the Hittite, if the frontal lobe's working, bad idea. But his lust and his passions and appetite is so inflamed, it doesn't go to the top floor. He says, get her for me. Later on, she sends word, I'm with child. And so he calls Uriah in. And he tries to get him to go home. And when he's not able to do that, he gets him drunk. And look at this. Look at the brazen nature of this. In verse 14, chapter 11, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the, by the hand of Uriah. This is high-risk behavior. You're going to give an assassin a note that has his own death sentence in it. All he has to do is open it. But evidently, Uriah's frontal lobe is working better than David's. Even when he's drunk, he's like, I'm not going back home. There's something wrong. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 9, you see the clincher. It says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Now, this phrase comes up three times, and that's the phrase that I was looking at in the New American Standard Version. If you look in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 27, the New American Standard Version gets it the closest to the original. It says, And when her days of mourning were over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. New King James says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. New American Standard Version gets it spot on, according to the original, and says, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. In the sight of God. In the sight of God. And then, when David's frontal lobe is working, in Psalm 51, the psalm that he writes after he has repented, notice, notice what he says. Psalm 51, he says, In thy sight I have done this sin. In the sight of God, in the sight of God, in the sight of God, repeated three times. David lost a consciousness of God. When I was in another school, I was in administration, and the structure was, you know, we didn't have a student services department, and so the deans reported to me. And we decided, for the sake of security, because there were some people that were going around our, our campus from the outside, that we would place outside of our dorms, not inside, on the outside, at the entrances, these, these cameras. And they're really home cameras, but in the 2020s, they're quite sophisticated. You know, they, they actually are not running all the time. They only run when there's motion, and it goes up into the web. Phenomenal. I said, all right, so let's buy this. So we got cameras for all our entrances. And I got up in our student meeting, and I said, look, guys, um, these are here for your security. We told all of the students, all of them, there's cameras outside the dorm, and they're there for your protection to make sure that, you know, no one's coming inside that shouldn't be going inside. Over the course of a weekend, a few weeks later, after we had made that announcement, the dean shows up in my office, because I have him check our cameras regularly, and he said, look at this. And I couldn't believe my eyes. Under the cover of darkness, at 2 a.m., 
in the back door of the ladies' dorm, I witnessed a young man, one of our men, one of our male students, sneaking quietly into the back door of our ladies' dorm. And on his way out, sneaking out, rendezvous with one of our other young ladies. And I thought to myself, have you lost your mind? This is 2020. There's such thing as night vision. You know what I'm talking about? It sees everything. And I'm like, he had lost his mind. The passions had become so inflamed, he lost a consciousness that we were watching. We were watching this and this. And look, I can't help but think that God looks down from heaven and we're off doing our secret stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Our secret stuff that we think that no one knows about. Oh, I'm going to keep this, and I'm just going to, oh, I'm just. And God told us, I see everything. I see it all. Let me read you a quote. Prophets and kings, let the young remember that wherever they are and whatever they do, they are in the presence of God. No part of our conduct escapes observation. Every act, every word, every thought is as distinctly marked as though they were the only person in the world. And yet we function like atheists. We're oblivious of God. Oh, this secret, I'm going to keep it from everyone. And you, we, we function. And God said to David, you did this in my sight. You did this in my sight. He had lost his mind. And yet we do this all the time. Maybe on our Saturday nights. There was an experiment that was done in this kitchenette that was being used by these co-workers. They would have their individual food that was kept there. And someone kept stealing all the food. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so people go back, oh, my apple pie. My milk's gone, all this stuff. So they tried everything. And finally, someone came up with this idea. Why don't we just put a sticker with some eyes that are there? <laughs> Sounds crazy, doesn't it? And according to the research, it's called the watching eye effect. In other words, people would look at that and be like, oh, You know, it's like, and, and the amount of stealing went down exponentially. Now, I don't know whether this is a, a factual and scientific verifiable thing, but, but the thing is, we need to live and educate our minds to live in the audience of one. Amen? 
to live in the audience of God. Ellen White says that that's how Enoch walked with God. He educated his mind to live in the presence of God. And look, there's no secrets, guys. There's no privacy. It's all public. Everything is public. And look at the wisest man that ever lived says. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God, keep His commandments. Why? For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. Fear God, because He sees everything. Moses said to the people of Israel, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. Isn't that something? You ever wonder what the fear of God is? It's not being afraid of Him. It's a consciousness of God. A consciousness. The realization that He exists. And He sees everything. And it's not a phobia. It's a reality. And that's why the first angel's message says, Fear God. Look at the next part. And give glory to Him. What's that? Whatever you eat and drink or do, do all to the glory of God. Temperance. Temperance. If you want this to, to function so that you live like God exists, so that you live with a consciousness of God, temperance. That's the place that it is. The appetites and passions, Desire of Ages, page 101, must be held in subjection to the higher powers of the mind. This self-discipline is essential to that mental strength and spiritual insight which will enable us to understand and to practice the truths of God's Word. For this reason, temperance finds its place in the work of preparation for Christ's second coming. Another institution that I was at, a young man came to me and said, can I speak for student week of prayer next week? He was an upstanding man from all outward appearances. Asked the right questions in class, dressed appropriately. I said, look, let me pray about it. A few days later, young lady came to our home and said, look, I need to meet with you and your wife. She sat in my home, broke down in tears, and said that she couldn't live with herself and had to come forward. Because a few weeks earlier, the young man that had asked to speak a week of prayer, and herself, were in the back seat of a car on a Saturday night. And they weren't having Bible studies. I met with him, and I said, Did you do this? After a few other questions, he said, yeah. And I said, man, like, you asked me to speak it week of prayer. A few days earlier, you were, I it's the dichotomy. The dichotomy. The public life. And the private life. Like, the dissonance. The dissonance. And we live in an age where we manicure our public life. We make sure it all looks right. 
Oh, this is where I'm at. Acapulco, look at this. I'm living a wonderful life. We make sure that's all pristine and beautiful. We strain every nerve to make sure it looks just right. But maybe there's another part of us. The private life. The part that we think that nobody sees. And God says, look, be faithful in secret. Because the God who sees in secret will reward you openly. We need to live in the audience of one. Amen. Every Sabbath here at Weimar since I've come here, my parents, you know, they have grandchildren. They had about given up hope and, you know, went to Alaska and surprise, surprise. And, uh, and so here at Weimar on Sabbath, they tune into every service. And uh, they tune in, they scrub through the entire service for one part of the service. Sorry, Pastor Don. <laughs> one part of the service, and that's the children's story. Because they just want to see their little grandkids just there on the front row. Every Sabbath without fail, they scrub through there. They send us screenshots. Screenshot. I didn't know my parents could do that. You know what I mean? Screen, screenshots. My, my dad's 75. You know, screenshots of, 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 of them. You know, they, they're just adore. You know, they love us, but grandkids, come on. You know, it's like adore those grandkids. It's like every Sabbath without fear, I'm watching my grandkids. And they make sure without fail to do that. It's not surveillance. And look, there's not a day that God's not thinking about you. He counts the number of hairs on your head. He's into you. Even in the most mundane tasks. Have you, have you read the psalm? When you get up and you're brushing your teeth, God's like, Going through your day, just go to class. You know what I'm talking about? He's that into you. And we break his heart. We crush him. Because we go into the delusion of anonymity. And we act like he doesn't exist. And we do things in his sight that crush the heart of God. We do this to him over and over again. And I want to make an appeal tonight. It's not a general appeal. Look, I just, this is between you and God. If you want to say, Lord, I want to give you my Saturday nights. I'm not saying we can't relax, but you know what I'm talking about. I want to give you my Saturday nights. I want to give you my use of media. I want to give you my, da- my diet. I want to give you my appetites and passions. Not because I have to, but because I want to. The Bible says, because of the mercies of God, we say, I'm giving you this.
my body, a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. And you would say, Lord, I want to give you this. I want to invite you to come forward for a special prayer. Amen. God bless you, brother. You want to say, Lord, I'm giving you my Saturday nights. I can't do it by myself. I want to give you my use of media, my diet, my appetites and passions, not because I have to, but because I want to. I'm tired of living as though God does not exist. I want to live in the audience of one, the audience of God. I'm tired of being one way in private and another way in public. Lord, help me to live in the sight of God, the God who sees in secret. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for living as though God does not exist. Forgive us for living in the delusion of anonymity. Forgive us for the loss of awareness that God sees everything. Oh, Lord, help us, we pray. Lord, save us. We can't even give you our hearts. Save us from ourselves. Lord, our coming forward today is just an acknowledgement that we need help. Our promises are like ropes of sand. We can't do this by ourselves. But Lord, us coming forward is giving you permission. It's our consent for you to work in our lives. Help us, Lord. We pray for revival and reformation in our own hearts. Change the world and let it begin with me. Let it begin with us. Lord, we pray that the idols and the addictions and whatever is going on in this campus that you only know. May be put away from us. Give us victory, we pray, because of the blood of Jesus. We need Jesus. Help us to fall in love with you to recognize that you love us more than we can imagine. And because of that, we want to say, Lord, I give you, I give you everything. Lord, help us, we pray. Thank you for your grace and your assurance. You pick us up when we fall. You're there for us over and over and again. Lord, we need your help. Help us, we pray. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.